I got it. My uh, a number in the first earlier hour saw that I had a suit on today, and um, so they said, "Well, you you must be preaching again." Now I'm not sure if they're still here, if they stayed or they went home or not, but um, the reason is that I make a distinction. This is my personal. Um, I do not think that I'm more spiritual, that I'm more holy than those who don't wear a suit when they're up here. I don't believe even that it's a a biblical thing that uh, you wear a suit. I personally make a distinction between being here as a member of the congregation, uh, sitting down there with you, and being here behind the pulpit. The duty here is to, by God's grace, tell you what God has said, seek to present to you the meaning, what did he mean when he said it, and then, by God's grace, we will not miss the, uh, impress upon us the the relevance to what he has said. So it's a solemn task, and my wearing a suit helps me to keep in mind the responsibility that uh, I'm fulfilling here as one who is a mere man. Life is full of drawing distinctions, making distinctions. We do so personally. Um, for example, uh, a special meal. Uh, say it's a birthday, your birth, my birthday, and, and it's a special meal. To be special to me... I make a distinction between having a steak, medium, medium well, little A1 sauce, between that over having a oatmeal, bean, and plankton casserole. Now there's nothing wrong whatsoever with a casserole like that, but for, for something special, make the distinction from my birthday, something like that, I'll take steak every time. Clothes. I just went through my suit, why I wear a suit. Now we make a distinction for what we wear on certain occasions. Who we will marry. If our culture permits that, we have a, a friend in Afghanistan, a young Christian girl who her... Muslim family right now is trying to marry her off. If you think of it, pray for Noria. But in in our our culture, um, we make a distinct, distinction. My wife made a distinction. She she chose me from many many others. Steak, right? <laughs> well, maybe not. Maybe it was casserole. As humans, we recognize distinctions in nature. Day, night, hot, cold, male, female. We should make that distinction. Those are distinctions built right into God's creation. Today, we see in our culture, they're seeking to erase so many of the distinctions. 
And yet, they often end up just making, creating other distinctions by so doing. Here's one common one that we've all heard people, educators and others, say to a child. If you just apply yourself, if you will put forth the effort, you can be anything you want to be when you grow up. Really? Really? I would not. I could not. You would not want me to be a soloist here. A singer. Professional musician. I simply do not have those God-given abilities in me. Some students, they are academically inclined. Others, much different, distinct, are physically, hand-on inclined. We've all heard, maybe know, of the intellectual professor, maybe who can't, for his life, hang a picture on the wall. Those sorts of things are distinctions that are determined by God when he created us. We are, in, we are distinct in height, body, uh, shape, um, giftedness, hair color. Well, I guess that does get changed by some. But uh, the God-given color that we have. God the Creator made distinctions in creation even in dealing with us humans. But there is none so momentous as God's making a distinction in humanity as to the righteous and the unrighteous. God sees some as acceptable to Him Good, righteous, and others as distinct from these, those who are unacceptable, bad, unrighteous. Psalm 5 makes it clear to us regarding this area of God's distinction made among people. For sake of time, we won't read the psalm again. We'll go through it as we do, but let's, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we come to you. We thank you for your good purposes in your creation. I pray today that your word will be clear, that it will be your word, not my ideas. I pray that your people will be encouraged. And Lord, those who may be here without Jesus Christ will be warned and challenged with the gospel. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are told this psalm or song is one of David's. The exact occasion of the psalm, what was going on in David's life when he penned it, is unknown. Except for the fact that internal evidence, as we look at the psalm, we certainly are led to believe that it indicates that it's a time where so often is the case in David's life, he's under attack. He's being persecuted. Now it seems that the attack is more verbal, slander, more than physical in this situation, but we don't know the specifics as it is 
Again, so true in many of David's psalms, we're not told. So, what we want to see here today is, first of all, David's dependence in verses 1 through 3. And then, the first divine distinction, where the divine distinction is addressed. And then a second time, the divine distinction is addressed. Okay? David's dependence, divine distinction addressed first one, and finally divine distinction addressed the second one. His divine dependence, David's dependence, the first three verses. Again, as is often the case, David starts out this psalm with a lament for this situation in which he finds himself. What does he do? He goes to God in prayer. Note in verse 1. He says, Give ear to my words. When we pray to God, we use words. Sometimes, I do anyways, verbally I'll pray and I pray out loud even if nobody's around. Sometimes it's internal Words, sometimes both as we pray. And secondly, he says, Consider, discern, understand my groaning. This word has a meaning of meditation, whisper, uh, murmuring, meditation. King James has, uses meditation. The ESV, the NASB, uses the word groaning. And the NIV, I think it had sighing. Sighing. And if it's this idea of groaning or sighing, then it's the idea of something that comes from us that is non-articulated. Is it be non or in? Any English teachers? Inarticulated, non non. You know what I mean. It's a call of the heart. Where we just don't know exactly what to pray. Or simply cannot put the burden of our heart, form it into words. God in His wonder and glory, His goodness to us, takes care of that for us. We read in Romans Chapter 8, verse 26. I think it, if I did it right, it should be up on the screen there for you. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. We don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Verse 2, David goes further with this. Heed the sound of my cry for help. You ever prayed that way? Attend to, heed, attend to, listen to the voice, the sound of my cry for help. My cry. Who's he address it to? My king and my God. My words, 
my groaning, my cry, and he addresses it to my king and my God. David, even as king, and we don't know if he was king at this time or not, but if he was, he, he knew a right relationship with God is impossible when we think of ourselves or even just try to act as if we are king of our lives. If we are our own sovereign God, when we depend upon self. So he is going to the eternal king, the sovereign God. He's needy. And he goes there where help can be found. He is showing here his absolute dependence on this king, his king, his God, by saying at the end of verse 2, For to you I pray. Where else would I go? To you I pray. He further shows that dependence, his, his devotion to God by verse 3, in the morning. He repeats it, in the morning. God, I'm coming to you at the start of the day. A habit, it would seem. I come, I, I commit my day, I commit my needs to you. I'm not going to go it on my own this day. I'm not going to go it on my own Tell well, I can't handle it. I've got myself in a real booger now. I'm coming to you now. And I know you'll hear me. My voice. My prayers to you. That I bring to you the first thing. First thing. The same pattern of the morning seems to be seen in many of the prophets. Jesus himself did it. And David is devoted to go before his king, his God, in the morning. Now that doesn't mean that's the only time he ushers this prayer. If you're in a time of great difficulty, we pray without ceasing, don't we? We're praying for somebody. And he depended upon God that God would hear and that God would answer. Do you see there at the end of verse 3? It says, In the morning, I'll order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. I'm going to wait to see what you will do. Wait on the Lord. I will eagerly watch. I ask you to consider this. Isn't that faith? In, in God, David believed. And he was depended upon and devoted to God. Hebrews 11.6. Again, if I did it right, you should have it on the screen. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Now, our key for this study of Psalm 5 today, can't cover everything, we're kind of coming at 
50,000 feet, something like that. Our key today is seeing the fact that David rests in the fact that he can pray, he can pray confidently because he prayed to the God who makes distinctions between humans. He prayed to the God who looks and between the wicked and the righteous makes a distinction. And from this initial dependence on God, this relationship that he has with God, he goes on to point out these distinctions that God makes. Maybe he's looking, boy, I bring this prayer, but I know God will hear me. Why? Because of this. Because of this. God does not treat everybody the same. And David does this by two times addressing this distinction that God makes. Two descriptions of divine distinction. Coming out of this prayer. So the first one that he addresses is in verses 4 through 8. The first he will address what Scripture calls the natural man, um, those who are unacceptable to God, unrighteous, uh, lost. That's the one side of the distinction. That's who he talks, refers to first. I want us to note the clarity of this truth that God does not treat all people the same. Right there, if you just look over uh, Psalm 7, verse 9. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. Uh, Psalm 9, 7 and 8. But the Lord abides forever. He has established His throne for judgment. And He will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. He draws a distinction as He looks at men and women. New Testament. Our Lord taught this as well. In Matthew 7. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will, but apparently some are. But not everyone. Again, in Matthew 25, Jesus' teaching, but when the Son of Man comes to his, in His glory and the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations, all the peoples are going to be gathered before Him. And he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. Drop down verse 41. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, 
into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Our humanness wants to say, well, that doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem right. But Scripture is clear. God does indeed make distinctions among people. Now what's the basis for this distinction he draws? Well, we see it in beginning here in verse 4. You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. Quite unlike the pagans' gods of biblical times, they often called upon their followers to sacrifice people, children, to uh, the temple prostitutes. Quite unlike them, God takes no pleasure in wickedness. And quite unlike unrighteous people who take great pleasure in their wickedness. We see it so much social media. It amazes me what people will talk about they're having done or doing on social media. No, no shame, no thought, just taking great pleasure in their wickedness. David goes further and he says, No evil dwells with you. No evil, none. Can dwell, can abide with God. Can gain an acceptance into God's presence. If you're familiar with the book of Esther, it's a good illustration of that in the book of Esther. Do you remember? She's going to come into the king to present the her case. When you come into the king where you have not been invited, he will either hold out to you his golden scepter, and that means you come into my presence. Or he won't. And if he doesn't, well, you're in big trouble with the king. Why is this true? Why isn't God, as we so often hear or picture him, why is he not the kindly grandfather of, of all people who just looks the other way, and I speak as a grandfather, looks the other way at their wickedness and evil? After all, they're just people, right? We're, none of us are perfect. We're just people and we're just acting naturally. People do Wrong things. People sin, the Bible would say. Verse 4 says, they cannot be accepted into his presence. No evil will dwell with him. He will not hold out his golden scepter to them. Why? Because scripture so clearly teaches us that God is righteous. I think it's verse 12 or 13. If you remember our study in Habakkuk or Habakkuk, Habakkuk, uh, verse 13, your eyes are too pure to approve evil. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. God is righteous. 
Why is verse 4 true? Well, the word righteous, translated from the Hebrew or from the corresponding Greek, both of those terms denote the rightness, uh, moral excellence of God. According to the scriptures, God's righteousness isn't something that God just says, well, I'm God, I can do whatever I want, so I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to be or I'm going to act righteously. That's not how scripture teaches it. Scripture teaches that it is essential to his very nature. He is a righteous God. He is righteousness. His righteousness is everlasting. He's immutable. He doesn't change. We can be pretty good one day and not so good the next. God's righteousness never changes. Psalm 119 Verse 142, your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. He is a God of faithfulness to his righteousness. He will not pervert what is right. He's always going to act in a way that is consistent with who he is. And so therefore, all his works, all his ways are just. Just. Deuteronomy 32. I'm going to read 3 and 4. For I proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. God, his just dealings with his creation reveal, manifest that righteous character of God. The Bible assures us that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And he rules over all. All that he rules over, he rules without any partiality. Without any injustice. Psalm 89.14 Righteous and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. So being a God who is righteous, He loves righteousness with all His being and therefore must hate that which is contrary and do so with a perfect hatred. When we were in Psalm 11 a few weeks ago, we we saw this same uh, same truth. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. 
loves righteousness. Here in Psalm 5, 5, we see that in this end phrase, verse 5, and you hate all who do iniquity. So he cannot be morally neutral. Can't be the grandfather. He can't be apathetic towards the, the character, towards the works of men or angels, in fact. But he will judge them with uncompromising righteous justice and equity with no mixture of anything else. Again, we saw a psalm... In Psalm 9, verse 7 and 8, the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment, and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. And based on what we see in Scripture, we have the guarantee that when God judges on that final day the deeds of all men, even those who are condemned on that day will bow their heads and declare you are just. You are right. For the Lord of hosts is going to be exalted in judgment and show himself holy in righteousness. Isaiah 5.16 There will be no accusations against God that will stand on that day. His works, decrees, judgments are perfect. Perfect. So then, why are some not accepted by God? Why are some going to be judged and cast from His presence? Well, he explains in verses 5 and 6. Listen to the description of David's enemies here. Yes, but these are all who are Contrary, describing the way of the natural man in Scripture. The first is so key there. Um, you see in uh, verse 5, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. The boastful, the proud. And again, you see, they're not going to be in God's presence. Pride is at the root of it. Pride is at the root of the human heart. The unrighteous, the wicked, the evil ones, they want to determine God's basis for any distinction that he would make among people. The when, who, how, why, etc., they want to determine. They want to be God. They want to take away God's glory. God is the sovereign righteous one. God alone has the right to judge. God alone has the right to determine what distinction he will make. And so when they say, no, this is how it will be, they're stealing God's glory as a sovereign judge. Isaiah 42, 8. So clear. I am the Lord. That is my name. 
It's the word, the name Yahweh. I am Yahweh. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to any graven images or idols. In Jeremiah chapter 9, start with verse uh, 23. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Uh, Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. We look very quickly, but in verses 5 and 6, he gives this description of the natural man, of the unrighteous man. It's the same man that uh, in Romans 1, Paul describes as, though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God. What did they do? They rather, in their own wisdom and their own decisions, decided to worship the creation rather than the creator. And ultimately, when you are the one choosing your God and what he's like, who becomes the God? You do. You do. John Calvin, I believe it was, said the human heart is an idol factory. It's always looking for something to worship. Something, anything to worship other than God, the God of Scripture. And these boastful aren't going to be accepted by God into God's presence. They shall not stand before your eyes. They will not be accepted by God into His presence, except for judgment. And this description goes further. The, the wicked, the evil, the iniquity, the falsehood, Bloodshed and deceit we see uh, laid out here. And listen to the God's righteous response. Hate all who do iniquity. Destroy those who speak falsehood. Abhors those who shed blood and deceive. You know, and it's not, not the concept, not sin itself which gets judged, though God will judge, do away with it. But it's sinners. It's sinners. So then this is the description of the unrighteous. Now God also shows love to them. You can love and hate at the same time. And God shows love to them. How? He offers salvation. The offer is for anyone who will come. A legitimate offer from God to by coming confession, faith, repentance, believing in Jesus Christ, receiving Him. So that offer, He shows love as He offers it to the world. And there's common grace too. The scriptures talk about He makes it to rain on the just and the unjust, right? He shows common grace every moment. The next breath they take is common grace. It's not deserved in any way. 
This is the description of the unrighteous. Sobering to say the least, isn't it? Now comes the distinction made. And, and this distinction we're presenting here twice. This isn't David's idea, right? This isn't, well, you know, he lived way back then. They, they were kind of naive, simpletons. This is inspired scripture. And so we see the next here in verses 7 and 8. What a glorious start to verse 7. But as for me, the unrighteous, the natural man, cannot come into God's presence, cannot be accepted. Verses 5 and 6. But as for me, he says, and I will enter your house. I will come into your presence. I can come into your holy temple. I can come in and, and bring my petitions that are so much on my heart to you. And I'll be accepted. The righteous can come. Right? Unrighteous cannot. David's prayer here in Psalm 5 has this confidence that he can come, he can be heard, he can receive help because God makes distinction among humanity. This distinction. Now it often comes to the Christians, I'm sure you've, you've had it presented to you in some way or another, the charge, oh you just think you're so holy, don't you? You're, you're a goody two-shoes. I have no idea what that saying means. Somebody knows, let me know afterwards. But we, we know the idea. You're a goody two-shoes. You think that you're holy or righteous. You think you're special to God. Well, yes. Exactly. Exactly. But not due to my own efforts. Not due to my own works. Notice verse 7. By your abundant loving kindness. But as for me, I'm distinctly different than verses 5 and 6. And it's by your abundant loving kindness. By God's grace shown to David. To me, to you if you are in Christ. It's His work. It's His love graciously shown towards us, isn't it? You know, in a matter of salvation, in the matter of making us acceptable before God, there's no participation trophies. No part in it. It's all of Him. I just share a personal testimony. Many years early in my following Jesus Christ, I had this idea that, okay, here's the gospel. God's laid it out. Confess, repent, and in faith trust Jesus Christ and Christ alone, and you will be saved. It's true. But I just kind of had this idea that God laid that out, and so anybody who happened to do that had got to jump on the bandwagon of salvation. And so I jumped on the bandwagon. There wasn't a whole lot. You could say, well, everybody you do this, you're saved except Southworth. And then God pointed out to me, 
is loving kindness. Before the foundations of the world, he put his love upon me. He loved me. Now, it's not our superior excellence. We as believers are not superhumans, are we? But God does this work in us. Through Christ. To make us acceptable to Him. To make us righteous before Him. To make us beloved. It changes us. It changes us positionally. We're not in that other group anymore. We're now... But as for me... It changes us practically. Our life changes. And by God's wondrous grace again, one day it will change us into absolute perfection. Noted in verse 4, God is not happy. God is repulsed with wickedness and with evil. So he has to change us. And he changes us. He must change us. And then we become his own. And his righteous ones want nothing to do with the same things he wants nothing to do with. His righteousness one, righteous ones then take no pleasure in wickedness. No evil do we want dwelling with us. We don't want it in our lives. We hate it when we see it in our lives, in other lives. Verse 8, O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. We want to be in a relationship that sees His grace that loves what he loves, that is repulsed by what repulses him. God, do this in me. Lead me in your righteousness. Make your way straight before me. So we love to be in his house, in his presence. Psalm 27, 4. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord, to meditate in his temple. Go to Psalm 42, 1 and 2. Again, talks about that desire. Now we recognize the old covenant, the, the tabernacle, and then uh, the temple, and also the, the term house. They looked and saw that symbolized to them the presence of God. Now they knew, Solomon in his prayer of dedication for the temple said, this building can't contain you. But that's where they recognized or saw the presence of God. So that, that's, the, that's the key idea here, signifying his presence. So we see David's status in verse 7. We see David's desire and his prayer 
for sanctification in verse 8. Again, loved ones, God makes distinctions. I could look at so many passages. Here's another one that's so clear. Um, Psalm 37, 27. Depart from evil, do good, so you will abide forever. For the Lord loves justice, does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever. Ascendants of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous, however, will inherit the land, dwell in it forever. Time goes quickly. Very quickly, divine distinction then addressed a second time. Verses 9 through 12. The unrighteous are in verse 9 and 10. Just see a couple of things here. Verse 9 has their description of them. Verse 10 talks about their their judgment. Um, Their description. Uh, We see here verse 9. There is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Now the Apostle Paul, there's a phrase there that should have jumped out with you, out to you. Their throat is an open grave. The Apostle Paul in laying out for us the condition of all who are unrighteous, all the lost, and that all are guilty before him quotes this and it's in Romans chapter 3 we have no time really to do much but just recognize Paul keeps drawing when he gives this description he's drawing from primarily David and, and the Psalms also from Isaiah but just quickly we'll read it and make that connection he quotes first of all this is uh, Romans 3 Verse 9, really, he's charged that both Jews, Greek, everybody is under sin. He said, everybody is under sin? Yes, as it is written. He quotes from Psalm 14, 1-3, which David also then repeated in Psalm 53, 1-3. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's none who does good. Not even one. And then comes a quote from our psalm today, 5.9. Their throat is an open grave. Then Paul quotes from David again, Psalm 140, verse 3. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Then he, then he quotes from a psalmist, not David, at least we're not told it's David, Psalm 10.7, whose mouth is full of cursings and bitterness. And then he goes to the prophet Isaiah 59, 7 and 8. Their feet are sweet, swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. And he closes with David, Psalm 36.1, there is no fear of God before their eyes. The point Paul's making here, obviously, and the point the psalmists and Isaiah were making, is that the human race, in its natural state, is utterly and incurably 
on their own, wicked. Wicked. So therefore all are worthy of judgment. And their judgment is, is, a, is a, a prayer really of, of David's. Hold them guilty, O God, by their own devices. Let them fall in the multitude of their transgressions. Thrust them out. There's that presence again. Thrust them out. Based on their own sin, their own unrighteousness. Now, David's not seeking vengeance here. He's, isn't that, God, go get these guys that are after me. Vengeance is for the Lord to take care of. Here's what is true for those who are distinctly God's. We are God's special one. His special ones. And, and He will take care of us. We don't need to seek vengeance. God will meet our needs. He'll take care of us. And look at David's reason for bringing out their judgment here. For the purpose of it. Verse, the end of verse 10. For they are rebellious against you. It's against you. See, it's God's glory again. God's nature. God's righteousness. That David says, that is the reason they need to be judged. Again, that idea of presence again. In the multitude of their transgressions, thrust them out. Away from you. Well then, the second group within the distinction, the righteous, verse 11 and 12. Their response to God's, verse 7, His abundant loving kindness. Verse 11, But let all who take refuge in you, dependent upon you, be glad. Let them ever sing for joy, and may you shelter them that those who love your name may exalt in you. Christian, you are his beloved. He is concerned for you. He saved you. He will sustain you forever. What then are we to do? Worship. Worship him. That's verse 11. In the verse note, worship isn't about self. Here is it. That those who love your name may exalt in you. It's directed towards him. Worship isn't about self. It's so sad that so much of corporate worship today is all about self or, or charismatic speakers or the music. Anything other than Anything other than right worship as presented here is idolatry. If it's the speaker that is all important, this charismatic guy, that's a form of idolatry. That's stealing from God his glory. It's not all about that guy. It's not all about the music. It's not all about you. It's about him. We who love your name may exalt in you. And what is the reason for our worship? His gracious, glorious distinction. Verse 12. For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. 
You surround him with favor as with a shield. What a distinction. What a contrast to verses 4 through 6 and verses 9 and 10 is Psalm 512. Well, key thoughts to end with. God is absolutely righteous. Therefore, He must be opposed to the wicked person, to the unrighteous person, to the natural man, that which we saw described and held guilty under God in Romans 3, 9 through 18. So, those who may even be here today who are the natural man, you've not come to God through the gospel, through the scriptural way, faith in Christ and Christ alone. You who will stand before the perfect righteous God who will, who must judge you based on that relationship or lack thereof that you have with him as an unrighteous creature. Please know that God tells you in his word that preachers aren't morbid who preach his word. We tell you because it's a warning. You are in eternal danger. Come to God today. Come on the basis of his abundant loving kindness which is made possible in Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God not of works lest any man should boast. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, unto righteousness. And for you, my brothers and sisters, who are righteous persons here today, believers, we who are totally dependent upon God's work in Christ, not our own, may God help us not to forget this distinction. It's all of grace. Be amazed by grace. What a wonder. But as for me, as for me, He loves us. He loves us. We can come into His presence. We can come and worship. We can rejoice and be glad of the distinct position that we have in Christ. Psalm 32, 1 and 2. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. God clearly makes a distinction. It is the most momentous distinction in the universe. And what a blessing when we are on the side of Christ. What a blessing.
Let's pray. Father, again, we recognize your word. Sometimes it seems so harsh to this world that wants to make the rules and to hear that you don't treat everybody the same in the end. Will come the charge that's unfair. Help them to know God. Help them to know the reality of who He is, why He must, and why He will judge unrighteousness. May anyone here today that may be in that distinct group. May today they see the abundant loving kindness of God in Christ. And before they leave here today, be able to say, but as for me. And we pray this in our Savior's name. Amen.